be here with you. I notice my own system's little ripples as the container shifts a bit. And I also notice the strength and quietude of the momentum that we've developed together over these four weeks. So we can all just keep leaning back into that. I have an announcement. Those of you who are here for two months, uh, all of the two-month yogis will have interviews, uh, meetings with a teacher on Saturday. So your next meeting with a teacher will be on Saturday. Everyone will be scheduled. Um, And then Friday, tomorrow, we're putting, um, after the Dharma talk, we're putting up some sign-up sheets with the teachers. So the intention of these these sign-ups are uh, for you to meet with a teacher who hasn't been your regular practice discussion teacher and um, to only meet with one teacher. There won't be enough slots for everyone. So please just sign up once if you do and those will be posted um, at the end of this talk. It's okay. It's okay if Dharma Seed knows what's going on here. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, Greg said last night that we've been, you know, uh, that everything that, that, that we've been doing here, that, that we've been pointing toward is, is this path of liberation through non-clinging. And I've got yet another variation on, on the same theme. And there was a question last week in the hall about recollection and about you know, why, why aren't we teaching a lot of recollection and is, is it valuable to do recollection with regard to cultivating dispassion? It was, a, it was a valuable question and it was cause for some reflection for me. And I wanted to speak a bit about recollection tonight and a bit about particular practices of recollection that have been meaningful to me. So I'll, I'll, share, I'll share a bunch of stories with you tonight. So, you know, we've pointed to recollection, recollection of, of your good deeds, recollection of generosity, um, you know, taking refuge can be a form, a form of recollection. And the, the Pali word for recollection is anusati. And we've talked a lot about sati, which we translate as mindfulness, but it may be even more nuanced than sometimes what the word mindfulness can imply. But anu means small or minute. So if we think of anusati, you know, for me there's a sense of, you know, remembering mindfully something um, particular. So sati, as we've, you know, been practicing deeply together, is not only present moment awareness, sati includes present moment awareness, but sati also includes the ability to keep something in mind, a slight flavor of recollection. That's, that's part of mindfulness practices. It's not just bare attention, but we're practicing with particular lenses, particular um, frameworks. You know, We're practicing with right view. We're practicing in a way where we remember what the Buddha taught. And the practice of recollection can be a wonderful support for your, your unfoldment and your freedom. I, I think rather than speaking about just the five recollections tonight, I'd like to call it the five recollections for your happiness and freedom. And in the process of recollection, we, we use the faculty of thinking, the thinking mind, to drop into something that is deeper, than thinking, that's more essential than, than thought. And so recollection is an art. It's not just like this free association of letting your mind you know, go off into the galaxies of you know, wherever, but really an art um, as we learn to recollect in a way that's in the present moment and that is related to your direct embodied experience. 
The difference, you, you know the difference. You know that sitting and thinking about anicca isn't going to free you. You don't get enlightened by thinking about anicca. Sitting and observing in constancy, arising and passing in your own experience, that's where you might begin to you know, smell some freedom. That's where some new possibilities can begin to open up. So we're practicing working with sati and recollection as a, as a means not just of attention, but of appropriate attention, of a kind of attention that, that um, helps to free our hearts. So the, the five daily recollections from the Upajanati Sutta, Recollections for Your Happiness and Freedom, um, I'm subject to aging. I have not gone beyond aging. I'm subject to illness. I have not gone beyond illness. I'm subject to death. I have not gone beyond death. I will grow different, separate, apart from all that is dear and appealing to me. And the last has to do with karma, has to do with understanding that we own our actions and that skillful actions lead to happy results and unskillful actions lead to unhappy results. So you can see why I say reflections for your freedom and happiness because it can feel heavy. You know? And the, I'm not speaking about these you know, to, to be morbid in any way but as an invitation for you to, um, for a sense, the sense of immediacy that is the truth of our lives to be amplified, to come front and center, to invite you to um, engage fully here, now. And I want to acknowledge that many, many of you have worked deeply with these recollections, whether it's been a formal practice of recollection or rather, it, rather, whether it's been just your life. Some of you are here practicing very actively with the presence of illness. Some of you are here um, practicing very actively with your body aging. Many of you are here, I know, from what's been shared in the practice meetings because uh, you're waking up to your own mortality. And there can be a sense of, as that's seen, you know, there can be a real urgency to practice and, and make practice a priority to spend time in this way. So, so everyone in this room you know, has been challenged in a personal way by what I'm, I'm talking about, by these truths. And so is the Buddha. So is the Buddha, you know, this, these recollections map over the teaching of the, the heavenly messengers. And, you know, the, the Buddha coming face to face with these truths in action was a huge part of what spurred him to set out upon his journey to leave his life of comfort and find another way to look for a deeper way of living. You know, the story about when he encountered an old person and a sick person and a corpse and a renunciate. That, that was, oof, really opened things up for him. So, you know, you know, you know this conceptually. Like, it's not news that you're aging. But, but um, we, do, we don't know, we don't know these, these truths through and through, or we wouldn't hold on so much. Part of why it's valuable to practice in these areas are, are because these areas are where we cling. We cling to, understandably, we cling to being well. We cling to some of the advantages of, of um, youth. We cling to our own lives. We cling to what we accumulate. So we tend to shy away from these truths because they can be uncomfortable and, and because of our delusion. 
In my early years growing up, my, my father was a veterinarian. And so from a really young age, I spent time at his vet clinic and I would go out to some different you know, ranches in the area when he would have to euthanize a horse or help little babies be born. And it was a really normal part of my life being in the presence of illness and death of, of animals. And it was also a regular part of my life being in the joy um, of, of you know new puppies and new kitties coming in and seeing just the delight of 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 new life and these these were side by side you know I remember um, I remember you know a black lab having puppies in our basement and two of the puppies died and I remember trying to make sense of that as a young person I remember when my father had to uh, he had to euthanize um, there was a, a, an elderly a very old woman who was completely blind, who lived in Fargo, and she had a seeing-eye dog who was her beloved companion for years. And I remember, like it was the first time I remember seeing my father well up with tears, was when he had to euthanize her dog. And, And I think all of this kind of planted some real interest in me in these cycles of nature and in the vulnerability of our embodied experience. I you know, started volunteering with hospice in my, in my early 20s and went on to spend 20 years really as a body worker, working with a body. And, um, and so for me, these truths have become, they were really an entry point into understanding the Dharma for me. And as I found my Buddhist, Buddhist path, I was just so glad there was a way to work with what was being evoked in me as the natural truths that hold our life were becoming, you know, just like they were everywhere. And so these reflections are just a process of uh, letting yourself be impacted, you know, letting your heart feel and sense How does it impact the heart-mind as you bring some of these into the foreground of your attention? And like all of our talks, as I speak about this tonight, I I just want to name, you know, like there are certain talks that are really helpful for where we're at and there are certain talks that aren't helpful for where we're at. So if this isn't what you need, don't do it. If it's helpful for you, please, please um, give it a shot. Try it out. So I'm going to speak a bit about each of, each of the recollections. The first having to do with aging. And I've really come to appreciate, some of you know Carolyn Jones. She's the resident teacher at the Forest Refuge, which is part of IMS. And she has a beautiful way of languaging, uh, practicing with these truths. And uh, for, for aging, you know, she, she invites us breathing gently I lovingly remember this body is aging. Breathing gently, I lovingly remember this body is aging. You're aging as you listen to me. (laughs) So am I. (laughs) Sometimes I'm kind of glad about that, actually. But, um, you know, you've aged this month. The body has aged. And it's interesting when you kind of look, like what, what ages? Does the mind age? Does aging add anything onto this moment-to-moment experience, seeing, hearing, t- touching, tasting, feeling? Does, does aging add anything on to that kind of experience? Does, does the awareness age? What, what is this aging? From the suttas, there's a case where a practitioner reminds themselves of this. At present, I'm young, black-haired, endowed with the blessings of youth in the first stage of life. The time will come, though, when this body is beset by old age. 
When one is overcome with old age and decay, it's not easy to pay attention to the Buddhist teachings. It is not easy to reside in an isolated forest or wilderness dwellings. Before this unwelcome, disagreeable, displeasing thing happens, let me first make an effort for the attaining of the as yet unattained, the reaching of the as yet unreached, the realization of the as yet unrealized, so that endowed with that Dhamma, I will live in peace when old. So he's, 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 um, sometimes I get a hard time when I give talks on this subject because I tend to be the younger one in the communities that I teach in. But what the Buddha is actually saying here is like, you know, don't wait, don't postpone, get going. You know, he's, he's, um, that there can be a kind of a robust energy for the practice when we realize this in this way. I saw a cartoon. <laughs> it was, I don't think it was by Gary Larson who did, does The Far Side, but it was, a, it was a character, a picture of a woman who kind of looked like she could have been one of Gary Larson's characters. And she's standing in a bikini in front of the mirror. And she was, you know, the intention was that she was depicted not as a young looking woman. And on one side of the cartoon, it's, she's standing in front of the mirror saying, I used to look good. I used, I used to look good. And then it says, and now I look good for my age. And, um, you know, age is just one piece, but we identify a lot, right, with these bodies, big time, big time. It's a place where our views can get really, really tangled up and a sense of, you know, am I in the body? Do I have a body? Is this body me? Is this body not me? It feels like me. If it's not me, whose arthritis is this? And um, and in a relative sense, yeah, like this is, there is a location here. There's a location where our wisdom and compassion, you know, shine shine forth from. There is a location. But from you know, from the moment that we're born, one of the first things that often happens when a baby's born, it doesn't always go this way, but often, one of the first things is, you know, the baby comes out, it's a boy or it's a girl. That's what happens a lot. And, and the kind of pressure and socialization that can happen right from that moment, you know, it's a boy or it's a girl. And, um, and we can get wrapped up and bound in these ways, but the arising and passing of each moment is not wrapped up. It's not bound. There's a difference between the, the momentary experience, right? You know this, you've been practicing for a month, and the concepts that we, that we overlay onto the momentary experience. And aging, does it ever feel like a mistake to you? can feel like a mistake. Like, what? What's up with this? You know, like, on the inside, I don't feel any older, but I, I look older. And I could go on and on about the kind of, you know, people were intoxicated with youth at the time of the Buddha. People are still pretty intoxicated with youth. You know, I was thinking about how, how the word ageless is used as a compliment. What message does that send? You know, now on your iPhone, you can take a picture and put on a certain filter and you look like way younger. I was on a, on a board call, a board that I serve on, and we meet on Zoom with this particular board. And our board president, who's a lovely, lovely person, not, not a particular, they're kind of a serious person and you know, their job's a president. And one day we got on the Zoom meeting and they just looked like, different. And <laughs> we said, you look really different. What's going on? And they said, do you really want to know? I said, yeah. And they said, like, if you go to settings, there's this little button to touch up my appearance. <laughs> <laughs> this person looked 15, 20 years younger, you know. <laughs> it was really interesting. <laughs> But there can be this message that if we're, if we're aging and we see it, that something is wrong, 
you know, that something's wrong. I, I, uh, I was teaching, I wasn't teaching, I was not, I was part of a retreat. This was about 15 years ago, I was part of a retreat, and there was some silence and some talking on this retreat, and I was cleaning the bathrooms with this woman who I just, I just came to admire her so much. She was somebody I thought, oh, I wish she lived where I lived. I'd love to be her friend. I have so much to learn from her. She did everything so mindfully. She was so loving. And at the end of our bathroom cleaning, um, you know, I just said, you know, it's been really wonderful cleaning the bathroom with you. I'm so happy to know you. And, um, and how old are you? And she said, I'm 80. And I said, oh my gosh, you don't look 80. And she paused and she said to me, do you mean that as a compliment? And I, I was like, I, I didn't say anything for a minute because she said, she, said, she said, I don't need to look younger than I am. I've been around for a long time. It was really a message for me. It was really a moment of teaching for me. You know, like I was in some ways... Um, like why not look 80 and all the all the all the beauty that goes with that for her as an elder why not so anyway how would your walking practice be if you were walking and you were aware of the body aging without getting into thinking about it you know just like what would happen if you, if we could be okay with ourselves with this process of nature as aging happens, period. If we could accept ourselves with our aging. Sickness. <laughs> Sickness, this body is subject to getting sick, to illness. I've not gone beyond sickness and illness. Breathing gently, I lovingly remember this body right here, this body is vulnerable to illness. Now, some of you might be thinking, you don't have to tell me that. I'm taking medication every day, and I'm having a hard time getting around. But it's something that I think that when things are going well enough, we tend to not think about. You know, and there's, like, it's a miracle that our systems work well enough to be sitting here at all. You know, all, all that has to be going on well enough for you to be sitting here hearing these words. It's remarkable. And you know, each of us right now are well enough to be here. And someday we won't be. For this retreat, there are many people who wanted to be on this retreat but couldn't attend this retreat because of illness. So we each take our turn. We each take our turn. The contemplation of, of, um, of the body being vulnerable to illness you know, asks us to open to the feeling of, of not being able to do something, not being able to do it. You know, to need the, the experience of really needing others. You know, illness often carries with it some measure of having lesser control in our lives. It's, it's not easy. It's not easy practicing with, with illness. So we can often, have, there can be a lot of fear that comes up. And it's important to kind of separate out the fear and the stories about what illness is, is or isn't going to be like because illness will happen in the present moment, period. I went to Walnut Creek on my last little my day off, my aunt and uncle are middle school teachers. They've lived there for a long time. And I went to be with them. And 
I go to their house a lot when I come to California. I, I love going to their house. I feel you know, they cook for me. They're nice to me. It's great. And <laughs> I feel like I, yeah, it's great. They just take care of me beautifully. And, um, and so it was, it was Sunday morning, and they went to go walk to Pete's Coffee and get some coffee. And I was in my pajamas, you know, just like ratty old clothes with a pair of socks on, working in the bed. And I left something in the car, and I went down in my socking feet to get something out of the car. I got it, and I went back to the door, and the door had locked behind me. <laughs> and, um, and I thought, no problem, I know where the key's hidden. You know, so I went to the backyard, and I checked where the key was hidden. It wasn't there. I checked over and over again, and finally I went to this neighbor's house, and I, I mean, I just, I looked really ratty, and I didn't have shoes on, and I knocked on the door, and um, I said, you know, I'm Erin I'm Treat, I'm the niece of Jim Treat, and, um, and I kind of explained what had happened, and I'd been to this house across from theirs, you know, a number of years ago, and a different woman answered the door, and so I thought, okay, the house has been sold, somebody new lives here, and so a wonderful woman, um, from Kenya, who is just talking about how she was doing God's work. She's really beautiful. And, um, and she said, come, come back, come, come see Marianne in the back. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is still Marianne's house because the woman who had lived there was, I remembered her. She was a very robust real estate agent with a little Sheltie dog. And she's back there with her Sheltie dog in her bed. She's about a quarter of the size of what she used to be. She was laying in her bed, just tiny skin and bones. Her eyes were really bright, and she had these like perfect red fingernails, perfect manicure. And she was wearing her night clothes, and I just started talking to her. And it took a while for me to realize that this was the same person that some years ago I'd met who was really robust, and I, I realized just how sick she was. She was really sick. She wasn't actively dying, but she was, she was quite sick. And um, Cecilia brought in some coffee cake. We were all having it. And it was running through my mind that I had this work that I needed to get done and that I didn't know how long I should be there because I had all this work I had to do upstairs. And um, as I was talking with them, you know, there was such a gift for me in this unexpected contact with someone who was really struggling with illness. We had this dear conversation, and it was just, it kind of gave me perspective. Later, my uncle found out where I was and came and got me and opened the door. But, um, but there was just a reminder to me as I was looking out at the houses on the block, you know, thinking like, I don't know what's going on in those houses, but not really thinking much about it and realizing there's a lot going on in this house that just looks one way from the outside. And this woman has really, really changed since last time I was there. And she undraped her feet, and her feet were kind of mangled looking. I just, she showed, and I think she just undraped her feet because she was um, hot, you know? It just gave me this perspective of like, Erin, your work will get done. It's okay. It gave me a real, real perspective around kind of how I was holding my work and around what else was happening in the area where I was staying, which is anywhere for any of us. With fear, the artist and author Ora Glasser, she, she says, if we're afraid of who we are, continually feeling frantic about feeling, if we're, if we're afraid of who we are, continually feel frantic about filling that space, anything to avoid that persistent unease beneath the surface of our lives. The fearlessness of the warrior comes from stepping again and again and again into open space with body, breath, and heart exposed. It's the fearlessness that's willing to be intimate with the fear. An aging excuse me, illness, recollect like really letting in the vulnerability of our own bodies. It's natural to be working with, with some measure of fear and vulnerability, but it's, it's freeing to not live in the fear because the fear is always about what's next, right? Illness happens in the present moment and it, it will unfold as it does.
I am of the nature, this body is of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. Breathing in gently. Breathing in gently. I lovingly remember that this body will die. Just notice how does that impact your chitta? How does that impact your sense on the inside? It's, it's remarkable that we as human beings have the capacity to reflect upon our own death. I, I wonder if coyotes can do that. I wonder if dolphins do that. I don't know if they do. So, a lot of times we don't talk about this this dimension of of the instruction of practice that's in the Satipatthana Sutta that has to do with a corpse in decay. And I find myself thinking, I don't want to upset the yogis. You know, why would we talk about a corpse being in decay? Let them just be in their peaceful state. It's hard enough to be here in some ways. But the truth is that if we can't talk about that and practice with that here, where will it happen? You know, where will it happen? Because um, I think I mentioned in my talk on Vedana, that, that because death can carry with it unpleasant Vedana, it's like hidden. It's hidden. It's put away. And we can be really unprepared when someone we love is in a dying process because there's this cultural bias to turn away from um, the smells and sights and um, sounds of the dying process because in many ways... Um, Life doesn't let us go easily. So I wanted to just read to you from the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body. There's a section, the last section of mindfulness of the body um, is about a corpse in decay. And it's, it's visual. And I don't think it was actually written to keep us totally comfortable. I think it's written to, to like, huh, okay. I think it's written to cut through delusion, honestly. It's pretty visual. So in, in giving us in instructions, Satipatthana instructions, here is what was said. Again, practitioners, as though she were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, one, two, or three days dead, bloated, livid, and oozing matter, being devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals, or various kinds of worms, a skeleton with flesh and blood held together with sinews, a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood held together with sinews, a skeleton without flesh and blood held together with sinews, disconnected bones scattered in all directions, bones bleach white, the color of shells, bones heaped up more than a year old, bones rotten and crumbling to dust. She compares this same body with it thus. This body too is of the same nature, it will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. It's quite a progression of images, you know, a deconstructive process. And I think the Buddha's teaching in this way to cut through our identification with, with the body. You can just notice it doesn't make you squirm a little bit. I felt a little uncomfortable reading that, you know, because of what the conditioning is around it. 
how would it impact your walking meditation? If you're out there, ho-hum, another afternoon walking period, what if it was your last step? Would you be interested? You can walk as if each step was your last step. How does that shift it for you? How would you get up out of this hall after the bell rings if you knew you weren't going to come back into this hall for some reason? Would you be there? Would you be interested? Again, these recollections amplify the sense of immediacy. Um, My mother died a few years ago. I'll speak more about that. But I've scattered, I, I received some of her ashes. I was with her deeply throughout her her uh, illness and her dying process. It was certainly the greatest teaching of my adult life. And uh, I've scattered most of her ashes in meaningful places and with people that are meaningful to me. But I haven't scattered all of them because I take them out sometimes. You know, I take out these ashes and hold them in my hand once in a while. You know, these like bits of bone, bits of teeth, ashes, molecules of the body that I loved and called my mother. You know, the ashes are not my mother, but it's, it's like because my conceptual mind is still making sense of her death, because it's, the truth of it is not yet realized completely on one level, it's very powerful to sit with these ashes. Ashes to ashes, right? <laughs> And um, I do want to share with you a little bit about just my own, what felt like my own charnel ground, you know, meditation. Many of you know the incredible gifts of being with with folks in in their dying process. Many of you have spent a lot of time being in that way. And, you know, for me, I, I, I feel like in the past few months, it's just starting to feel like it was in the past. She died in the end of September 2015 and feels it's starting to feel like it's in the past, but it's taken a while, and I'm okay with that. But watching my mother in her, in her dying process, she died of a, of a rare and aggressive form of, of cancer. We have the same bone structure in our face. Like, so I see her friends, and they say, oh, you look just like your mother at, at this age, and I do. I mean, it's pretty uncanny, actually. But we... We look, we, she looked, I looked, I look a lot like my mother. And so, you know, being with her in these weeks of the body um, letting go, the body dying, starting out with her face being you know, kind of full, looking not unusual, to her face becoming quite uh, gaunt and drawn in that slack expression that can come from being on morphine, that gaze, you know, to her face, you know, being weirdly radiant, to being waxen, to having no movement at all when there is no more life in the body. For me, it's like this, you know, face to face with the three characteristics, eyeball to eyeball with my own mortality. Tremendous teaching, not, not comfortable. There was plenty of dukkha, and the, the dukkha, there was also lots of non-dukkha, but the, the, the dukkha comes from the clinging, you know, comes from the clinging. And the dissolution of the elements that happens in a dying process, I could say a lot about it, but I remember... Um, when her legs started to feel to me not like her legs, but like earth. There's a certain energy and tissue that is alive. It was like as the life was going out of her, 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 her legs were like, they were just rupa. They were just form. This is really a, such a heavy, heavy, heavy feeling in the legs as the, as the earth element dissolved. And, and tremendous... Radiance, you know, subtle, perceptible, this brightening around her field. And I, 
I think that meditation is very, very good practice for death, for the inevitable moment. In many ways, we're always practicing for the moment of death, this letting go practice. And, you know, there's a quality of interiority, of going within, of innerness that, that may happen in, in the dying process that can be a kind of, not unlike some of what we do in the practice of meditation, the silencing, the, the um, quieting, can be a feeling of, of touching into something, you know, sacred as the awareness moves, moves um, closer to that, that place of mystery. couple words from Kathleen Dowling Singh from her wonderful book, The Grace in Dying. Because I, I think for me, Buddhist practice gives an incredible um, how-to, you know, how to, how to meet the moment, how to, how to let go. And, um, and these experiences, you know, are across different, just different religious traditions, different human experiences. In this book, she says, one dying woman, and it's not, it's not always so pretty, but there is some beauty in what she's saying here. She says, one dying woman described her experience as one in which she felt herself clearing out of the way so God could fill her. The Taoist tradition speaks of becoming invisible, of being no one special, just the deeply interior space in which creation is unfolding. The medieval Christian monastic tradition refers to this centered interiority as a threshold or liminal experience. This interiority appears to allow and nurture the path into within and onto beyond. So as we as we open to, as we lovingly remember that our body will die, there's a way that turning toward death, um, you know, the, the, the Buddha speaks about how as mindfulness of death, Maranasati is, is pursued in practice, that um, there's great fruit and benefit, that one who does this gains footing in the deathless and has the deathless as its final end the death and the deathless. Jan uh, Chosen Bay is a a wonderful Zen teacher. She says, "If if we practice stepping into the unknown moment by moment, hour by hour, millions of times, then death is just the next step into the unknown. It loses its terror. Practicing stepping into the unknown moment by moment. We're practicing that in such a direct way here. So this is some of how these recollections can can wake us up to the reality of our lives, the preciousness of our lives. And, you know, the recollection of, of death, you know, for me has a, has a way of melting some of the views that separate us, the, the seeing this process of nature unfolding um, reveals something about the truth of who we are. It reveals something about our deepest nature that it's like ineffable. You know, I can't explain it, but you, you know, you have a sense Okay, something from Woody Allen. And, you know, he's like the only person that could put it this way as usual. He says, in my next life, I want to live my life backwards. You start out dead and you get that out of the way. Then you wake up in an old people's home feeling better every day. (laughs) You get kicked out for being too healthy Go collect your pension, and then when you start work, you get a gold watch and a party on your first day. (laughs) You work for 40 years, 
until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. <laughs> you party, drink alcohol, are generally promiscuous, then you're ready for high school. <laughs> you go to primary school, you become a kid, you play, you have no responsibilities, you become a baby until you are born. And then you spend your last nine months floating in luxurious spa-like conditions <laughs> with central heating and room service on tap, larger quarters every day, and then viola, you finish off as an orgasm. <laughs> I don't know if that's allowed in here, but it's pretty funny. <laughs> it's pretty funny. So the point here is that um, the tragedy is not in the dying, right? The tragedy is in living, disconnected from our lives. And death will happen in an ordinary living moment, not so different than this one. The process of dying will happen in the present moment. And death awareness practice can help us to, to touch that letting go, to, to open to that third noble truth brings us right up close, like Greg was talking about last night with the truth of impermanence. Anicca, snap, boom. And if you think about it, you know, everyone in this hall, I think, will be dead in a hundred years. Maybe sooner. We don't know. I want to share this sutta to you that I haven't heard taught a lot, but I, uh, it, the sutta moves me. The sutta moves me. It's, it's a sutta about Ananda Pindaka, which Greg and James have, have spoken about, Ananda Pindaka, who's a great, great benefactor um, to the Buddha. His generosity made a huge difference in the, allowing the conditions for the teachings to continue for so many. And... Uh, Anapindaka wasn't a monastic, he was a householder, and he was, he was suffering, he was ill, and Sariputta went to, to visit him, and Ananda was his attendant. And he sat down and said to Ananda Pindaka, I hope you're getting well, I hope you're comfortable, I hope your painful feelings are subsiding and not increasing. Which you hear a lot, like somebody's dying, you say, be optimistic, or it's going to get better. And Ananda Pindaka says, Venerable Sariputra, I'm not getting better. I'm not well. I'm not comfortable. He goes on to explain that his pain is actually increasing. I won't share with you all the strong metaphors he uses, but one, one of them is he said he feels just as if a strong man were splitting my head open with a sharp sword. He talks about the burning in his body. He says, I'm not getting well. I'm not comfortable. My painful feelings are increasing, not subsiding. Then householder said, sorry, Putra. He, he goes through this instruction with Ananda Pindaka. And you could, you could hear this instruction as being given to us. And that'll make more sense at the end. He says, then, then you should train thus. I will not cling to the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. And my consciousness will not be dependent upon the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. I will not cling to forms, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, mind objects. And my consciousness will not be dependent upon them. I will not cling to eye consciousness, ear consciousness, all the different consciousness, consciousnesses, and my consciousness will not be dependent upon them. I will not cling to eye contact, ear contact, nose contact, tongue contact, body contact, mind contact, and my consciousness will not be dependent on contact. And he continues through, I will not cling to feeling and my consciousness will not be dependent on feeling. I will not cling to any of the elements. 
and my consciousness will not be dependent on the elements. I will not cling to the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, formations, consciousness, and my consciousness will not be dependent upon them. I will not cling, and he goes on to say, I will not cling to these very pleasant states of concentration, and my consciousness will not be dependent upon them. I will not cling to this world or the world beyond, and my consciousness will not be dependent upon this world or the world beyond. I will not cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, encountered, examined by the mind, and my consciousness will not be dependent on this. And when this was said, these instructions about not not clinging and the consciousness not being dependent upon the objects of clinging, Ananda Pindaka started weeping. And uh, Ananda said to him, you know, basically, what's wrong? Are you, are, you, are you foundering? Are you sinking? And Ananda Pindaka says, I'm not foundering, Ananda. I'm not sinking. But although I have long awaited, I have never heard such a talk on the Dhamma. And Ananda says, such a talk on the Dhamma is not given to lay people. It's only given to people who have gone forth to monastics. And um, Ananda Pindaka says to Sariputra, let such a talk on the Dhamma be given to lay people. There are people with little dust in their eyes who are wasting away through not hearing such talk on the Dhamma. There will be those who understand. And then after giving Ananda Pindaka this advice, they, um, they got up and left and Ananda Pindaka died with a happy rebirth. It's like it's a call to make the teachings around clinging and letting go, you know, in death available. And this, 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 it's instructions to us about where, where are we clinging? And, and if we're not, if, if, let's just imagine the mind wasn't clinging to any of that. You know, what remains? What remains? I'm not going to get through all five of these tonight. The fourth, the fourth recollection, I will grow different, separate from everything that's dear and appealing to me. (coughs) Breathing in gently, I lovingly remember that loss is part of life. I mean, certainly, when death happens, we we, we let go of everything. And it's really something else to consider how it would actually be to be parted from, you know, all your clothes, all your jewelry, all your family, all your friends, all of your possessions. I think about this as people are displaced so much into all over the world today. Refugee crisis. It's not the refugees aren't the crisis. They're the, it's a symptom of a deeper crisis. But like this is so, so true, you know, that we just, we just never know. We never know. When Dara talked about what happened for her and her husband moving in with their mother, with her, her mother in 2008. Like, like who, who would have thought, you know? moving from a house of her own and, and moving in with, with her mother, which ended up being a, a really great thing. But, um, you know, when you're here, just kind of look at what are you taking to be yours? Is it your walking path? Is it really your room? And we operate within me and mine. Of course, we operate with, within me and mine, but we can operate without being defined by that because it's all borrowed. It's all the generosity of so many beings, and um, in one sense, it's, it's all borrowed. Land, the, the fantasy of ownership, owning a home. Do we really own land? 
It's a relative, it's a relative way of talking about things, but I, I bought a house a year and a half ago, which was such a huge step for me as a single woman who's a Dharma teacher living in Durango. Believe me, the home loans are not set up well at all for Dharma teachers. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's just this process of like owning a home, owning land. What, what is that? You know, it's, it's Ute, it's Ute Mountain, Ute land. I, I certainly don't own it. But this, um, this, this um, attachment to accumulation and, and what can be a grief at, at a sense of dispersal. Breathing in gently, I lovingly remember loss as part of life. If I was here for another week, I'd do a talk on the fourth and fifth one a little more fully. And the fifth, the fifth re- reflection, recollection, we've been talking about a lot in the last week. You know, there was Dara gave a talk on Upeka, and uh, Greg gave a talk on karma. We've been doing the practices in this hall um, around the power of understanding the power of our, of our intentional actions producing an ethically appropriate result, as Bhikkhu Bodhi puts it. So these invitations, you know, can be a sense of, why do I want to think about these things, really? Um, these invitations are direct, they're, they're fierce, and, you know, I, I, I feel, for me, they definitely invite a a, a transformation, awakening up out of these you know, delusions of permanence, um, and and there's there's just a lot of peace that's possible as we don't fight with reality so much, but as we practice making peace with these realities that are part of our lives. Really, so I offer these to you as an invitation, not to sit and think about during the meditation, but to maybe pick one and drop in from time to time, especially where if you're feeling casual in your practice or, or feeling um, a little flat in your practice, just drop it in, drop it in gently. The, the Carolyn um, Jones's version of the fifth recollection is breathing gently, I lovingly remember to meet this moment with wisdom. So I'll end with a poem that's read a lot in in this hall because it's so darn good. Uh, The Summer Day by Mary Oliver. Because this isn't really about death or sickness or dispersal or attachment to accumulation. It's about about living and being happy and being free. The practice is all in service to our, our deepest happiness and freedom. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who's eating sugar out of my hand. Who's moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who's gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, What else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Take a moment. Thank you.
appreciate very much your attention and, and your practices here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.